0: Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani State of Mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This was almost the perfect murder. Introducing a new podcast from Court TV. They were killed by their own children. Murder and the Menendez brothers. I just started firing. What was in front of you? My parents. Oh that is on tape. <laughs> Murder and the Menendez Brothers a Court TV mystery available now listen in Stitcher Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app You must remember, just a kid. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Last week, we learned about how Humphrey Bogart, a blue-blood Broadway theater actor who had struggled to make an impression in Hollywood, transformed himself into a romantic, tough guy who became one of Hollywood's biggest stars, and even something of an American hero. Along the way, Bogey fell in love with Lauren Bacall, his young co-star in Howard Hawks's To Have and Have Not, and took her as his fourth wife. Lauren Bacall was born Betty Persky in 1924 in the Bronx. She was raised by a single mother, and she modeled for Diana Vreeland's Harper's Bazaar before she was spotted by Hawks's wife, Slim, and shaped by Hawks into the perfect on-screen counterpart to Bogey. The Bogey and Bacall romance started out as an extramarital affair, but it wasn't just one of those things. By Bacall's account, she was the crowbar with which Bogart wedged himself out of his terrible third marriage, a liberation which gave him a new lease on life, leading to 12 years of unmarred domestic bliss, abruptly ended with Bogart's death in 1957. But by Bacall's own admission... Domestic bliss with Bogie meant putting her own professional life on the back burner and allowing Bogart to set the terms for not just their marriage, but also Bacall's approach to choosing films and managing her career. That seemed like a fair trade during their ecstatic marriage, but once Bacall was on her own, it was a different story. In part because even in death, Bogie never really went away. Bogart used to joke about what women would be like in a perfect world. In a perfect world, according to Bogie, a woman would be small enough to fit in his pocket, and when he wanted her, he could take her out of his pocket, keep her cupped in the palm of his hand, or maybe let her free to dance on top of a table. But if she abused that freedom, she'd go right back in the pocket. And when he wanted it, he could make her full-sized, say, for a night, and then shrink her up again and put her back in the pocket. Lauren Bacall or Betty as she was known to her friends, sometimes wished she could do the same to him when he was alive. After he died, Bogart's legend loomed large over Bacall's head, defining her own life and work for decades. This is the story of how Bacall dealt with having her identity as an actress and a woman, subsumed into first her identity as Bogie's wife and then as his widow. It's the story of the disastrous affair with one of Bogie's best friends that Bacall entered into while still grieving, and the not much smoother marriage she embarked on a few years later, with an actor who looked like Bogart, but didn't love like him. And it's the story of how an actress permanently associated with classical Hollywood cinema rebuilt her career far from Hollywood, and found her greatest recognition later in life by herself. This is the story of Bacall after Bogey. Lauren Bacall's first movie, To Have and Have Not, was a huge hit when it opened in 1944. And with her May 1945 marriage to Bogart... Everything looked like smooth sailing. She got a reality check real quick. Her first movie without Bogart was called Confidential Agent, and it was a bomb. The critics who had championed her as Garbo, Dietrich, Hepburn, and Mae West all in the same barely legal package now suggested she be sent packing from Hollywood altogether. Bogart and Bacall would make three more movies together The Big Sleep. Dark Passage and Key Largo, all are noir classics. But other than that, Bacall would be the first to admit that a lot of her movies were pretty forgettable. The word Hawks had used to define the screen persona he was creating for Bacall was insolent, and Jack Warner might have used the same adjective to describe Bacall's off-screen dealings with the studio. She was constantly being suspended by Warner Brothers for refusing to act in the subpar movies thrown her way. Bakal was actually doing something pretty modern. She was taking a stand against mediocrity, refusing to cheapen her personal brand by letting her talents to bad films. But it was perceived another way. It was perceived as though she didn't want to work. And then there was the fact that her career, from its very beginning, had been wrapped up in her romance with her husband. Not only had the entire screen persona of Lauren Bacall been invented for her by Howard Hawks as a compliment to Humphrey Bogart's screen persona, but since they had married, she had distinguished herself as an excellent better half, throwing awesome parties, showing up on Bogie's arm at the Oscars, several months pregnant with their child, and yet resplendent in Christian Dior. She loved being a homemaker. Well, she loved making Bogie's home. He had never really had one before. Never had a marriage happy and secure enough to settle into a nice house and buy things to fill it and invite friends in to share it. They had two beautiful children, and she still worked here and there, but it wasn't even a question what she'd choose when there was a choice to be made. At the studio and at home, she was Mrs. Bogey before she was Ms. Bacall. Bogey didn't mind if she worked, as long as it didn't interfere with her commitment to him. And that meant she wasn't allowed to star in films that would shoot on location, because that would mean being away from him. And, Bogey had a strict rule never to tip the scales, never to use his own influence to get his wife cast in anything. If she wanted to work, she had to do it standing on her own two feet. And in a bit of do-as-I-say-not-as-we-did business, He told her that just about the worst thing she could do would be to fall into an onset affair. Not only were they unprofessional and would cause her to be looked down upon by the directors and the executives, but even if Bogie himself didn't find out about it, the lying would wreck their marriage, and that would hurt her more than it hurt him. With this warning hanging over her head, Bogie allowed Bacall's occasional flirtations with other men— Men like Adlai Stevenson, who Betty passionately campaigned for in defiance of her Eisenhower supporter husband, and Leonard Bernstein, who'd come over to the Bogart house and play piano until three in the morning while Bogey was out on his boat. Bacall rationalized that these men who held her attention weren't lecherous. They were, in fact, the good guys, because the status quo in Hollywood was that married women were ignored, pushed totally to the sidelines while the men kibitzed about the business of making movies. At least men like Adlai and Lenny treated her like a human. Bacall didn't fight any of Bogart's protective efforts. Throughout her first marriage, she felt like she was the luckiest girl in the world. When they were apart, she said her heart actually hurt. So whenever she could, she went where he went, and happily played housewife and nursemaid on Bogie's location shoots, ordering canned soups and hams to substitute for the apparently inadequate local cuisine available on the Mexican set of The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and bringing her own supply of antibiotics to Africa for the shoot of the African Queen. It wasn't until eight years into their marriage that Bogie and Bacall spent significant time apart. He had to go to Italy to make Beat the Devil, and she had already committed to starring in How to Marry a Millionaire Back at Home. That movie would be a big hit for her, one of her best films without Bogart. But later, she would admit that she always felt torn. She wanted to be a wife, a mother, and an actress. When she was working, she longed to be at home. And when she was at home, she was frustrated to not be working. She wrote, The truth is that I wanted it all, all the time. And God knows I tried to have it. And God knows I almost did. And then... Bogey got sick, and Bacall spent nearly a year nursing him, and then he died. Bacall felt overcome by numbness. The day he died, she'd write, was life's longest day for me. It was also the first night of her life that she'd spend alone. No mother in the next room, no husband next to her in bed. She planned the funeral in a daze. She had requested donations to the American Cancer Society in lieu of flowers, a declaration that moved the American Floral Association to send her a snippy telegram. Do we say we don't go see Lauren Bacall movies? It got worse before it got better. She decided to place a model of Bogart's beloved boat on the altar at his funeral, a choice she later called, The Last Sane One I Made for Many Months. For months, she thought and talked about nothing other than the man she had lost, and of course her children, who showed up at the school bus on the morning of their father's funeral to find photographers laying in wait. A few weeks after Bogie's death, with Valentine's Day approaching, her seven-year-old son Stephen offered a suggestion. "'I know how we can surprise Daddy,' he said. "'We can all shoot ourselves and be with him for Valentine's Day.'" The call decided they had to get out of town. She took the kids with her on a publicity tour to promote Designing Woman, the Vincent Minnelli movie she had made before Bogey's death. They'd go to New York, Boston, Chicago. Before she left, Frank Sinatra threw her a dinner party. And while she was away, he started calling. A lot. He wanted to know when she was coming home. Frank Sinatra had become close with both Bogarts during his long, drawn-out split from Ava Gardner, when Bacall went to Europe to meet Bogey on the set of The Barefoot Contessa, Frank asked her if she'd carry a coconut cake to his beloved Ava, who was also in the movie. Ava had moved on to a bullfighter by that point, and she all but threw the hand-carried cake into the garbage right in front of Bacall. Back in Beverly Hills, Sinatra started to come over to their place almost every night looking for a sympathetic ear, looking for a drinking company. Bogie may have suspected that his friend had a certain affection for his wife— You don't think he comes to see me, do you? He told Bacall. Although Frank did come to see Bogie often when he was sick, aside from Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy, who'd make rare trips out in public together to check in on Bogart's sickbed, Sinatra was maybe Bogart's most frequent visitor during his last days. During Bacall's first days alone, after Bogie, Sinatra made himself available whenever she needed to talk. He was the only single man she knew, And she started looking forward to his attention, even depending on it. When the press tour was over and she returned to LA, Bacall and Sinatra made their debut as a couple. Out of the tree of life, I just picked me a plum. From the outside, it seemed like they were getting serious rather quickly. Bacall would play hostess at Frank's dinner parties, would sit in on his recording sessions, accompany him to Vegas for the weekends. Her friends warned her she could get hurt. He wasn't bogey. It wasn't a question of finding the right one and then making a decision to be with her. One woman may never be enough for Frank. Or one woman might be too much for him. He might never be able to give enough of himself to that kind of commitment. Betty knew all of this, rationally, but she couldn't get over the way he made her feel. She had spent a year or more wrapped up in death. Frank may have been unpredictable. But he was so alive. And what was she supposed to do? Stay at home alone in the house she had shared with the now dead love of her life, waiting for her kids to grow up and leave her? The house was so quiet, especially at night. It only reminded her of what she had lost. Sometimes Frank would suddenly disappear, he would drop all contact for a week, and Bacall would become so depressed, she'd feel like she was going through another death. And then he'd show up again and treat her like nothing had happened. And she'd be so elated, so relieved, that she wouldn't ask what had happened or why. Not like he would have told her anyway. His friends told her not to push. Just sit tight, do nothing, be pleasant and pretend it doesn't matter. So she tried to play it cool, taking severe pains to do nothing that would put pressure on Frank or make him feel insecure. At the same time, she sold the home she had shared with Bogey, with the hope that her new boyfriend might relax a bit if he no longer had to pick her up from a house haunted by a legend. It didn't change Frank's erratic affections, and it didn't change Bacall's anxiety. After a disastrous New Year's Eve in Palm Springs, Betty went to New York for another press tour, assuming she and Frank were, if not definitively over, then maybe at least on a break. Then she came back to L.A., and he came over to her place and asked her to marry him. She said yes, and before they could even get to Romanoff's for a celebratory drink, they started planning. He even offered to add rooms to his house for her kids. In a booth at the bar, a young girl asked Bacall for her autograph. Frank said, put down your new name. She signed Betty Sinatra. It would be the first... And last time that she would use that name. Aside from this sole autograph hound and his agent, Swifty Lazar, Frank didn't want anyone to know about the engagement right away. He went off to Miami for a singing engagement, and Swifty made the mistake of taking a call from gossip columnist Luella Parsons. The Examiner newspaper ran the headline on the front page Sinatra to Mary Lauren Bacall. Bacall's phone started ringing. Concerned friends wanted to know if it was true. Slim Hayward, the former Mrs. Howard Hawks, called and asked, You're not going to do it, are you? Bacall said, Maybe. I'm not sure. Slim responded, Well, everyone's entitled to one mistake. One person who didn't call was Frank. Days had gone by and Betty had no idea where she and her supposed fiancé even stood. Then one night, the phone rang. It was him. "'Why did you do it?' he asked. "'Why did she tell Luella?' he meant. "'She said she hadn't done anything.' He told her that he was trapped in his hotel room, that the press wouldn't leave him alone. He told her they'd have to lay low for a while." Lay low for a while? What did that even mean? They weren't bank robbers. They were two grown-ass adults who were supposedly in love. It meant that it was over, at least as far as Frank was concerned. Over, as in clean break. No contact. Months later, Bacall finally ran into him at a dinner party. He didn't say a word to her. Wouldn't even acknowledge her presence. He looked straight through her. When Frank dropped Betty, so did their mutual friends. The party invitations disappeared, and she had no one to talk to about it. After all, it was Frank who had been her post bogey confidant. Slim called again. She invited Betty to come with her to Europe. Insisted, really. Hollywood was a dead place, she said. It was time for Betty to move on. So she did. In Spain, she drank everything, Made Ernest Hemingway's wife jealous and dance flamenco, the party continued in Paris. In London, she was offered a film that would shoot there, and Spain, and India. And when that wrapped, Slim's new husband, Leland Hayward, asked Betty to star in a project he was producing called Goodbye Charlie. It would be Lauren Bacall's first Broadway play, and it would inaugurate a completely new chapter in her life and career. If it's a little bit funny that Lauren Bacall's two big breaks in movies and then in theater came courtesy of men married to Slim Hawks slash Hayward, it's only fitting that the two phases of Bacall's career also had their own complementary marriages. Jason Robards wasn't exactly the New York theater world equivalent of Humphrey Bogart, although he did look quite a bit like Bogie. But he was a different type of star, a real actor's actor who worked constantly— Because he needed the money, but he also held on to a certain contempt for commerciality. He and Bacall hit it off at a New Year's Eve party and then started getting dinner and drinks together after their respective rehearsals and shows. Betty thought Jason was dazzling, if also a little crazy. He had three kids and was on his second wife, and Betty knew she shouldn't get involved with a married man. Just because it had worked out the first time doesn't mean it was the right thing to do. But she did. They'd meet at the Palace Bar. Jason drank a lot. And Betty rationalized it as what an unhappily married man does to cope. Because that's what Bogie had told her he had done when trapped in a bad marriage to her predecessor. Goodbye, Charlie wasn't a hit. It closed after a couple of months. And she threw herself into the relationship with Jason, turning down work to be with him while he stumbled through a tricky divorce. Her kids were ecstatic to have a father figure around. Of course, he was someone else's father. But Betty had plenty of room for the extended, blended family in her new, massive apartment in the Dakota. When Jason's divorce finally went through, he had to give up all of his assets in the settlement. And then they were in Europe, where Jason was shooting Tinder as the Night, opposite Jennifer Jones, and Betty found out she was pregnant. She was 36. And when she told Jason, first he was happy... And then he freaked. He told her he wasn't sure he even wanted to get married again. And then he changed his mind and decided they should marry as soon as they could, in Vienna, right after he finished his shoot. But when they got to Vienna, the couple had to meet with a lawyer to get their marriage license. And the lawyer wouldn't accept Bacall's word for it that her first husband was dead. And the death certificate couldn't be sent from America in time. So they couldn't get married in Vienna. No big deal. They would elope in Vegas. But they got to Vegas and, again, they were denied a marriage license because not enough time had passed since Jason's Mexican divorce to make a new marriage legal. Betty started to have her suspicions that the universe was trying to tell her something. Finally, on July 4th, they made it legal in Mexico. They celebrated with tacos and tequila. In fact, the tequila flowed straight through dawn, and the pregnant Bacall deemed the evening a disaster. Naively, Betty thought that marriage would change Jason. But he still lived in bars, bringing home strangers in the morning to listen to records, waking up her kids. The night she went into labor, Jason was trashed. He stuck around for the birth of their son, Sam, and then disappeared. He was hours late to pick up mother and child from the hospital, and then he showed up drunk in a chauffeured Rolls-Royce. Betty was livid, but she put on a happy face because there were photographers outside. It continued more or less like this for a couple of years. She planned a surprise party for his 40th birthday, and by the time he showed up in the wee hours of the morning, pretty much everyone had given up and gone home, Betty smashed a bottle of vodka into his birthday cake she was so upset. Giving up and going home wasn't an option for her. She had nowhere else to go. It was her apartment. After that disaster, she convinced Jason to see a psychiatrist. And things got better for a while. He and Arthur Miller and Elia Kazan started a repertory company at Lincoln Center. Feeling like things were settled at last, the third Mrs. Robards felt it was time to go back to work. To go back to being Lauren Bacall. but there were no good movies on the horizon. She had gone from being Bogey's widow to simply having been gone for too long. She co-starred in Shock Treatment, which she called a truly tacky movie, and settled for fourth billing in Sex and the Single Girl. Meanwhile, Jason was growing disillusioned with his partners in the Lincoln Center venture, who seemed to be running toward the money in defiance with their original mission statement. Mr. Bacall's self-image wasn't helped by the growing Bogart cult, egged on by University Cinema Societies and a rash of new biographies, which canonized Jason Robards' current wife's taken-too-soon first husband. In interviews, Bacall would try to shift the attention away from Bogie and toward her new actor husband to little avail. And Jason soon ramped up his drinking. He showed up fatally late to his own 40th birthday party, but on Bacall's 40th birthday, Jason didn't show up at all. Finally, Katie Hepburn and Spence Tracy gave Betty a talking-to. Get out. Forget it. Think of yourself again, Katie said. Spence told her that no one quits drinking because their wife tells them to. They don't quit drinking until they decide to do it for themselves. So Bacall decided to let Jason decide what happened to their marriage, and she would simply put back whatever effort he put in. She returned to Broadway, starring in Cactus Flower, originating on the stage a role that would go to Ingrid Bergman in the film version. It was a hit, and Bacall was committed to starring in the show for two years. During this time, she and Jason were often estranged, with him going to California to make movies. That seemed to be good for him. At the very least, he drank less there. In 1968, Betty found a love letter written to her husband by another woman, and she decided she was done. She returned to the scene of the crime, Mexico, where they had married For a divorce. Again, she commemorated the occasion with tacos, no tequila this time. She hadn't worked in a year and a half, had no potential source of income on the horizon, and then her mother, her best friend, who had been struggling with heart problems for a while, died. Betty Bacall was now a two time divorcee and an orphan. She felt completely alone. Then, suddenly, Lauren Bacall was offered the role of a lifetime, the Betty Davis part in a new Broadway musical version of All About Eve, to be called Applause. Betty Davis had been Bacall's childhood idol. She had sat through all of her films in the 1930s and 40s completely wrapped, looking up at Davis and imagining what it would be like to be up there. Betty Bacall didn't miss the irony all but relegated to the scrap heap by Hollywood, at age 45, she was now getting a chance to put her own spin on Hollywood's masterpiece about what happens to aging actresses and pay direct tribute to her own screen inspiration in the process. And it would completely revitalize her career. So welcome, Miss Eve Harrington, to this business we call show. You're on your way to wealth and fame. Unsheathe your claws, enjoy the game. You'll be a bitch, but they'll know your name. From New York to Kokomo. Welcome to the theater, my dear. You'll love it so. Applause gave Bacall focus when she desperately needed it. Not once in 25 years had she felt free to prioritize her own work over her relationship with a man in her life, over her life at home. Now, two of her three kids had left the nest. It was time for Lauren Bacall to do Lauren Bacall. And as part of that, she made two rules. She wasn't going to get involved with her very handsome younger co-star, Len Carew, and all interviewers would be informed that it was absolutely off-limits to ask questions about bogey. Neither rule actually stuck. Bacall and Carew had an affair throughout his run in applause, but he was only half committed, which meant, for Bacall, the relationship was only half satisfying. And when it came to interviews, she often ended up talking candidly about her need to shake off the label of Bogie's widow. A 1972 profile in The Guardian described her as floating into a room on a cloud of cigarette smoke, breathing truisms like, To have that kind of world open up to you with that kind of fantastic man? Hell, you better take it while it's there. Grab it, because it ain't never going to come again, baby. Would it really never come again? A few years later, in her first memoir, By Myself... Bacall would write that she refused to believe that Bogey was her first and last true love. During the run of Applause, the director Jean Nicolesco, who had worked with Bacall in How to Marry a Millionaire, came to see the show and told her, You can never have a high like this anywhere else. You don't need a man. There isn't a man alive who could ever make you feel the way that audience makes you feel. Bacall felt determined to prove him wrong. But that was easier said than done. Putting her career first meant spending a lot of nights alone. One of those nights was the night of the 1970 Tony Awards, where Bacall won the Best Actress Prize for her work in Applause. She had never even been nominated for an Oscar, and by the time she finally was, for playing Barbara Streisand's mom in The Mirror Has Two Faces in 1996, she'd won another Tony for starring in a Broadway adaptation of the Katherine Hepburn Spencer Tracy comedy Woman of the Year. It had happened again, Bacall had made her mark on the stage by recreating a role first played on film by an actress who seemed to almost effortlessly attract the kind of respect from the Hollywood establishment that Bacall had found to be elusive. And of course, when she finally did get nominated for an Oscar, she didn't win. She could have predicted that. For old broads, the the end-of-the-career nomination has to be enough. When there's a young, exotic dish like Juliette Binoche to contend with as the competition— but what's amazing is that after she was finally acknowledged by the Academy at the age of 72, the call seemed to finally stop trying, once and for all, to prove herself in Hollywood. Instead, she made herself available to young Hollywood outsider filmmakers like Lars von Trier and Jonathan Glazer, playing key roles in films like Dogville and Birth. And then in 2006— she really dropped the mic, playing herself in a cameo on The Sopranos. Hello. Gentlemen, allow me to introduce Miss Lauren McCall. Lauren, this is Carmine Tatsi and Christopher... Moltisante, huge fan. Thank you. Tazi. you were great in the haves and have-nots. Oh yes, dear Howard Hawks, thank you. I'm a presenter at one of these award shows. Show us some bullshit. But did she find love again? In the 70s, there was an intense affair with a married Englishman, which ended badly. And after that, if there was anyone she took seriously romantically, she wasn't telling. When she added an update to her first memoir in 2006, she wrote that she had been living alone for 25 years and that she had found that it suited her. That new chapter noted moments of triumph, like her The Mirror Has Two Faces awards run, and her detailing of her amusement to be cast in two movies by Lars von Trier. But it also had a lot of sadness. Bacall was the youngest person around when she got to Hollywood, and that meant that she was around to watch almost all of her old friends and former lovers die. Jason Robarts, Gregory Peck, Katherine Hepburn. When Bacall herself passed away last month, we lost one of the last witnesses to the pre-television era, when movies were an unparalleled cultural force and movie stars, though basically slaves thanks to their studio contracts, essentially lived in an alternate reality. Fame was different then. It didn't last for 15 minutes. It could continue on into eternity. It has for Bogey. We can only hope it does for Bacall. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, narrated, and edited by Karina Longworth. That's me. You can find more information about this episode and previous episodes at youmustrememberthispodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We'll be back next week with the concluding chapter of our story about Madonna from Sean Penn to Warren Beatty. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Like luck, like a star